225 million roses were produced for Valentine's Day this year. 180 million cards were purchased and presumably exchanged. And 73% of those cards were purchased by women. Fellas, I don't know where the discrepancy is. It might be that we spent $100 on roses and so we didn't have the $12 to spend on the Hallmark card. Does anybody want to say amen? Uh, We spent roughly, though, $19 billion as a a society and just the states alone on Valentine's Day this year. Which begs the question... Where in the world did this celebration come from? I'm weird enough to want to research these things and find out why we celebrate what we celebrate. And if you're strange like me, you're probably going to love this, okay? Because Valentine's Day has some history to it. In the ancient Roman Empire, they had a, a festival, three days of a festival that was called Lupercalia, and it was from February 13th to February 15th. It was a celebration of fertility, but they went about it in a little bit of a different way. Um, They would kill, the men would kill either a dog or a goat, and they would skin the dog or the goat, and then they would beat women with the animal skin. I kid you not. They believed that this would increase fertility. Now, people lined up for that shellacking, and then after that, they would put names in a jar, and the men would draw out the name of a woman, and they would spend that weekend together celebrating Lupercalia. Well, around the third century, (laughs) around the third century, there was a man who was a priest by the name of Valentine. And Emperor Claudius II had made an edict in the Roman Empire that marriage was outlawed. It was forbidden. And Valentine, being a priest, believed in covenantal love. And so he had an underground ministry where he married people against Emperor Claudius II's wishes. Well, when Emperor Claudius found out that Valentine was marrying people, he martyred him. He killed him. He cut off his head. And that martyrdom happened on February 14th, right in the middle of Lupercalia. And so you fast forward a few hundred years, the church is celebrating the martyrdom of Valentine because he was such an amazing man of God. And the culture's celebrating Lupercalia, and the church says, you know what? We should really just put these two things together in order to weed out paganism, lift God up, and lift love up. And so from that point forward, people started celebrating Valentine's Day. You fast forward a few hundred years and it's being celebrated in the new world in the 19th century. And then in the 20th century, in 1913, Hallmark gets a hold of this day and February has never been the same since. So we celebrate love. We may not mention the goddess Aphrodite, but we sure still are spellbound by Cupid's arrows. We love love don't we? You might even be wondering, well, what's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? But we all know that love is more than just a emotion, don't we? In fact, in fact, we know that we were 
wired for love, designed for it. You could get every single physical need met as an infant. And if you didn't get the touch of love, you didn't develop in the way that God had intended you to develop. We were and are designed to be people who both give and who receive love. We don't just love love. We need love. But you may be wondering, why? Why? I mean, the evolutionary biologists would say that it's wired into your DNA code in order to perpetuate our species. But in the same way that we can't explain goodness or meaning or beauty or truth based on biology alone, love functions in a very similar way. That love is far better explained and explored through poetry and song and metaphor than it is through biology and microscopes and molecules. There's something in us that knows that we were wired for this. And love is hard to explain, but it's harder to ignore. I think the ancient church father, St. Augustine of Hippo, was right when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Could it be that this transcendent human longing for love is actually designed to point us to our God. You see, I would argue that the design for love or the desire for love points us to the design of God, which is exactly where Paul is going to take the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter three. If you have your Bible, will you open there with me? Ephesians chapter three, we're going to be beginning in verse 14. It's on page 999 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Resonate, it's in front of you in that chair right there. And I would encourage you to open up as we explore this passage of Scripture together. As you're turning there, let me catch you up on the letter to the Ephesians thus far. We're calling this series Revision, and we're asking God, God, give us a new and fresh vision for what it looks like to be your people, to be your church, to live in relationship with you. This letter was written in 62 A.D., by the Apostle Paul to a church that he knew and loved. He's sitting in a Roman jail cell or on house arrest in Rome. And he's writing. And we said last week, or week one, that he gives us a revised identity and then a revised vision for growth, a revised story, revised unity, revised mission. Pastor Esteban did a wonderful job unpacking that last week. And this morning, we're going to look at a revised love. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Are you there? Wonderful. Let's roll. Here's the way that Paul begins this section. For this reason. So he connects everything he's about to write to what he's just written, to what he's just said. He's called us to unity, and he's called us to be the kind of body where both Jews and Gentiles find their home in one place. For this reason, he writes, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, this is an atypical way of praying for an ancient Jewish man. Most Jewish men would have prayed standing up and with their hands in the air. But Paul takes a different posture. He says, I I bow my knees. Um, It was a position of vulnerability, of urgency, of humility. 
And the Apostle Paul is going before his father on behalf of the Ephesians and his longing is deep and it's urgent and his posture is vulnerable. God, you've got to do this. I can't do it on my own. And he writes this, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's a point back to our unity once again. We have one father, God. And here's his prayer. That according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. And we're going to explore this entire text this morning, but I want to begin on the mountaintop. I want to begin at the epicenter of Paul's prayer and the epicenter of our lives together as people of faith. And Paul's prayer is very clear at the core of it. Here's his prayer for the Ephesian church and here's his prayer for us this morning. That our lives would be rooted and grounded in the amazing love of God. He would say that that love is the ground of our very being. Because the human life flourishes in the soil of divine love. It's what you were designed for. Whether you recognize it or not, it's what you long for. This word love that Paul uses is the word agape in the Greek. Will you say that with me? Agape. If you've been around church, you probably have heard that word a number of times. But agape could simply be described as the steady intention to will the good of another. To will the good of another. So when Paul says we're rooted in the agape of God, that God is willing our good. And it's not a present or it's not a future hope only. We don't root ourselves in the love of God when we get everything worked out and and we sort of clean ourselves up. We don't root ourselves in the love of God when we earn his love. No, no, no. It's a present reality right now, today. It's something that you can decide this morning to root your life into. And Paul uses two metaphors that both have the same idea behind them. The first is, a, or the second is an architectural metaphor. Uh, the idea of being grounded would be to build a building on a solid foundation. But the first was to be rooted. It's an agricultural metaphor. And it literally is the picture of a tree sinking its roots down into the soil. And the picture that Paul paints is that every life is like a tree. And you're sinking your roots into something. Now think about it. A root gives a tree stability. It feeds a tree nutrients. It allows it to grow. And every single life is a rooted life. The question is not whether or not you are rooted. The question is what are you rooted in? See, because some lives are rooted in performance, success, possessions. Some lives are rooted in a family. It's a good thing. Some lives are rooted in adventure or fun. 
Every single life is rooted. Every single life is finding their nutrients somewhere. In fact, will you turn to the person next to you and tell them you're rooted? You're rooted. You're rooted. So Paul's prayer is that you might be rooted, that you might find your nutrient stability and growth in God's love, in his steady intention to will your good. So the question might be, how do we actually do that? What does it really look like for a life to be rooted in God's love? I'm so glad you asked that because Paul addresses that in this passage. Here's the first thing that he says. Back to verse 16. He writes this. That according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your what? Inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Pause there. I want you to have the text either open in front of you or I want you to follow along behind me because I'm going to unpack Paul's argument for you. It's too important to miss. Here's what he's saying. God has the ability and the resources, the riches to pour into your life and those riches are released through prayer. Paul's writing to the Ephesian, for, Paul's writing, he's praying for the Ephesian church. God, pour out those riches. So we either pray for ourselves or we pray for others. That that's one of the ways that God releases his resources into our lives. And those riches are powerful. They're like dynamite. That's what that Greek word that we translate power means. Dunamis. It, it means dynamite. They're explosive. And where do those riches intersect with our life? In our inner being. Um, We might consider the inner being to be like the deepest resources of our self. Or maybe even our soul. Or as Paul will say later on, in our hearts. It's this same idea. It's on the inside. And he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Through faith is really interesting because he's writing to a group of followers of jesus now doesn't jesus already dwell in the hearts of people who have faith just say yeah yes yes he does so what's paul praying for what's paul praying for i think we might summarize it best like this that it's not about how much of jesus you have but how much of you jesus has In his wonderful little book, My Heart, Christ's Home, Robert Munger calls us to view our lives as a house. And here's his question all throughout that book. How many rooms of your life does Jesus have access to? What spaces is he allowed to go into? Does he have access to every single place of your life? Or are there some places that you're like saying to God, God, I'm going to do my own thing here. I know what you're asking me to do, but this is sort of my room. This is my place. Are there any parts of your life that function like the junk drawer of your house? You just put things in there when everybody's coming over, you pile it up and then you close it up and you go, let's just ignore that that even exists. Or... 
Maybe you have more stuff and you put it in a closet, right? And when you're giving a tour of your house to somebody who's coming over for the first time, you show them every other room except that room. Don't hang me out to dry, Emmanuel Faith. Am I alone in this? Maybe, maybe. So the interaction with God, the invitation from God is not to have him be an invited guest, but Paul says he's a permanent resident. He gets to go everywhere. There's nothing that's off limits in our heart. But that requires that we have some semblance of self-reflection and self-awareness. I hear a lot of Jesus followers say things like, we don't just want to look inside. We want to look to God. And to that I say, amen. But what's, where is one of the places that God dwells, according to this passage? On the inside, in our hearts, in our lives, if we are followers of Jesus. See, prayer is two things. It is attentiveness to God, it is worship of God, it is interaction with God, but it is also the practiced cultivation of the habitat of our inner lives. Prayer weds what we know of God cognitively to a personal responsiveness to God relationally. And what Paul is praying for for the church at Ephesus is that they would know God's love, that they'd be rooted in it, and that they would cultivate an awareness of his presence. See, because if you can have a strengthened inner being, you can also have a weakened inner being, right? A a weakened heart, a, a weakened soul. So how do we actually participate with the Spirit of God? To say, God, build my soul, build my heart, make my heart a receptive habitat for your presence in your spirit to dwell. How do we do that? Let me give you two things this morning, two things. Number one, we open ourselves up to God's pruning. This comes just right out of John chapter 15, where we say to God, maybe what David said to him in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Like David's writing that there might be some things that God sees about him that he doesn't see in himself. And then he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. As you reveal these things to me, God, lead me. You want to practice to do this week? What if you just prayed this simple prayer every night before you went to bed? And then just paused long enough to hear what God might want to say to you. See, because as Jesus followers, we should be far more afraid of the sin in our life that we don't see than the sin that we do see. We should be far more afraid of there being things in our life that are preventing us from walking in the abundance that God has for us that we just don't see Because when we see him, we can confess them and repent of them and turn and walk into his kingdom. That's always available to us. And so we allow ourselves to be pruned. But we also invite Jesus into our pain. I don't know about you, but some of the times in my life when I've sensed God's presence most strongly, when my heart was most hurting. 
See, it turns out that pain seems to be some of the most fertile soil for the awareness of God's presence. To use Munger's analogy that there's sometimes these painful places in our past that we lock God out of, but they are actually filled with the most potential to cultivate an awareness of his presence. And so maybe today you drop some of the defenses and pretenses and you say back to God, God, I want you to come in even to those most painful, dark places. I'm willing to revisit them with you. You're the great healer, and I trust that you want to move me forward. So we cultivate an awareness of his presence. But Paul doesn't stop there. Listen to where he goes next. He says that we may have rooted and grounded in his love, and that we may have strength to comprehend. This word in the original language means to grasp or to seize hold of. With all of the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Yet God's love is so big that it surpasses knowledge that you will never get to the end of it. I love the way that John Stott, the great theologian, wrote when he said this, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass mankind long enough to last for all of eternity, deep enough to reach the most hardened sinner, and high enough to exalt them to heaven. Paul's prayer, if I could summarize it for us, is this. That followers of Jesus would be empowered for the difficult task of seizing the expansive reality of God's love that transcends our cognitive understanding. That's his prayer. So you might be wondering, well, if it's impossible to fully comprehend, should we even try? And the answer to that is, yes, we should. We should. But we should maybe go about it in a little bit of an atypical way. See, if I were to ask you to learn about a Hershey kiss, there's a number of ways that you could do that, aren't there? I mean, you could study it and you could look at this Hershey kiss and you could say oh, it's, it's wrapped in silver foil and it's in the shape of, what would you say, like a, a teardrop? No, something like that. Okay. Um, uh, and it has a, a white little flag coming out of it that says kisses on it. Okay. That's one way to learn about it. Uh, you could also research it. And figure out what's inside of it. And what you'd find is that it's filled with sugar, delicious sugar, and milk, and chocolate, and cocoa butter, and lactose, and milk fat, and soy lechonin, and a bunch of other stuff I can't pronounce. Okay? Are there any other ways you could learn about this Hershey kiss? Oh yeah, you could also unwrap it, and you could pop it in your mouth, and mmm... Gonna have to give me a minute. You're just gonna have to take my word for it. It's delicious. I think a lot of people they approach learning about God. They study. Not a bad thing. They research. Not a bad thing. But there's an invitation to taste and to see that God is good. 
And part of the way that we grasp this love that's impossible to fully grasp is that we experience it. We experience the abundance of God's affection for us. See, the Christian life is always more than an experience, but it's rarely less. It's rarely less. Like we said from the beginning, we are wired to long for and to need God's love. Did you know that Jesus was wired in the same way? That after he was baptized and he was coming out of the waters of baptism, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my, what? Beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Did you know? If we are going to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, if we are going to become his apprentices, we have got to hear what Jesus heard if we are going to live how Jesus lived. And so many followers of Jesus, they try to do this walk of discipleship based on willpower alone. But God's design is not that you would pull up your bootstraps in order to live the Christian life. It's that you would open your heart and receive his love that he longs to pour into your life right now, today. Over every single life in this room, God is declaring, you are my beloved son or my beloved daughter. I love you. I'm for you. I'm for for your good and for your flourishing, will you root your life in me? If you're anything like me, there are moments in life where I just don't feel God's love. You with me? Well, what do we do when we don't feel God's love? Let me give you two things. Number one, number one, you step back far enough to remember. There's this old song that says, I want to know what love is. Okay. Well, we know exactly what love is as Jesus followers. By this, we know love that he, Jesus laid down his life for us. And I don't know if you got one or 12 of those 225 million roses that were handing, handed out this Valentine's Day. But I do know this, that on the hill of Calvary on a cross 2,000 years ago, Jesus the Messiah gave his life for you in a declaration of love. And when you don't feel God's love, remind yourself that it's true. But then, but then, posture yourself to actually receive it. Because love is spelled time plus attention. And we want to know God's love. We've got to spend time and we've got to give him as our attention to say, God, will you pour out as the, as Romans chapter five, verse five says, will you pour out your love into my heart through your Holy Spirit? And the one thing we cannot do when we don't feel God's love, please don't miss this. If you walk out of here hearing nothing else, please hear this. When we don't feel God's love, the thing we cannot do, we must not do, is try to earn it. It is the surest thing to derail your life of discipleship. Because we don't become spiritually strong by what we do. We become spiritually strong by what we receive. But you also might be thinking, all right, sometimes I don't feel it, but then there's times where I look at my life, and if I'm honest, I don't see it either. 
Things feel like they're just falling apart. And I love that Paul puts this hint of what to do in that instance embedded within this passage. Here's what he said. That we would comprehend with all of the whom? Saints. He's saying, don't try to do this on your own. It's impossible. Don't try to do it on your own. In your darkest moments, look for the fingerprints of God that will often come through the people of God. There's a woman in our church body right now who's battling cancer and probably in some of her last days here on this earth. And for the last few months as she's fought, her life group has shown up at her house to cook meals and to clean and to be the tangible arms of Jesus around her. When my mom was sick and dying of a brain condition, it was their church, their life group, women from that life group that would show up and would cut my mom's hair, would do her nails, would cook meals and clean their house. I mean, this is the love of God that's on display. We grasp it through all the saints. We experience the abundance of God's affection. And then Paul writes this, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be what? Filled with all of the fullness of God. See, we are all longing to be filled. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In a sense, we're all empty vessels needing to be filled, needing to be completed as that great line in Jerry Maguire where Jerry said to Renee Zellweger, you complete me. Every single person is looking for something to fill them up, something to complete them. And as the great theologian Daryl Johnson wrote, Paul's prayer is a compliment to every single human being. That's you. He's a comp- it's a compliment to every single human being because it says that we were made in such a way that the only thing that finally fills us is the triune God. So we anticipate fulfillment or completion in God's filling. Paul ends this section and he writes this. Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly, or some translations would say far beyond. It was the passage of scripture that um, this church leadership used in order to put forward the building campaign that helped build the children's building. Um, just finished it just last year. By the way, If you gave to that project, from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you. We have over 100 new families here at the church, partially because of that space, that God is using it to make a huge difference. That was only phase one of beyond. We're going to be starting phase two in a few months here. You're going to be hearing more about that. It's going to include a number of smaller projects, but one of those projects is going to be a refresh of our worship center. I just want to say most of all, though, thank you to those of you who sacrificed. Thank you to those of you who gave. God is doing a great work. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work. Where? Within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever And the church said, amen, amen.
Yeah, there is power. As we're aware of God's presence, as we experience God's affection, as we're filled to completion in God, there is a power, the power of love, that's available to you and to me. Notice these bookends. Paul begins this section kneeling in prayer. And he ends this section standing in power. Because when we kneel in prayer, we walk in power. Friends, there's more power, more dynamite available for the Christian life than most of us will ever experience. But that power comes into our lives as we open ourselves up to say, God, I want to receive your love. And I want to root and ground myself in that love every day that I live. So as we have a few minutes before we're going to be rushing out of here, I want to invite you to put your stuff away. And I just want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment. To close your eyes and just imagine... God looking at you. Imagine God looking at you. What kind of look is on his face? For some of you, I'm quite sure that the look on God's face is maybe one of, you think it's one of disgust or frustration or anger. What's the look on his face? Nicole Giles, our kids ministry director, said, one of my most fundamental convictions is that when God looks at me, he never rolls his eyes at me. Paul's invitation would say to you and I this morning that when God looks back at you today, he looks with arms wide open and love in his eyes. His invitation to you is, would you root your life in my desire to will your good? Would you root your life in my agape? Will you ground your life in my love? All those other things you're chasing after are going to let you down. They're going to fall short eventually. Would you root your life afresh this morning? And the love of your Father. See, Emmanuel Faith, you may not be so sure, but I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So would you afresh this morning, give your allegiance to him, ground your life in him. And then would we be the kind of people together that as we're grounded in the soil of his love, that would bear the fruit of that love to our community where he's planted us and to all around the world. It's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen.